there had been abuse in my family, uh, but it was mostly musical in nature. Are you ready to get your world rocked? Ready! Are you ready to get your mind blown? Do it! One, two, three, four! Songwriter, film composer, multi-instrumentalist, and studio wizard John Bryan has worked with artists ranging from Amy Mann to Kanye West to director Paul Thomas Anderson. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. John Bryan joins us to share his thoughts on the art of songcraft. Then we review the latest from Scottish R&B singer Emily Sande. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, when people ask us who one of our all-time favorite guests has been coming in to talk and perform, uh, we often have John Bryan on the list. We thought we'd revisit one of our favorite interviews ever. John Bryan came uh, in 2006, recorded in our studio, talked with us, played some music in front of a small audience. Um, We both knew his resume inside out. He's been a great producer, Fiona Apple, Amy Mann, Elliot Smith, Rufus Wainwright, you know, Spoon, Kanye West. How do you produce Kanye West? He's been a wonderful uh, film, not only composer, but collaborator, working on Magnolia and Punch Drunk Love and and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He's a multi-instrumentalist, hardly anything he can play. He's a sought-after session musician, and he's made some music on his own as a solo artist, Meaningless in 2000. Jim, he has also uh, taken up a residency in Los Angeles over the years at a great club called Largo, where I've seen his set, uh, you know, four or five times, and it's always a marvel. Uh, these improvised sets, uh, the audience is calling out any song they can think of. You know, play a Captain and Tennille song, you know, yeah. he'll, and he'll do an incredible version of a Captain and Tennille song. Or, you know, something more contemporary, you know, an Amy Mann uh, track that he may have produced. He'll do it. He'll do Queen. He'll do Cheap Trick. He's, he's, he's amazing in that regard. And he, he could play it in, in numerous styles. He's conversant with everything from jazz and Dixieland uh, to soul, R&B, pop, you name it, he can play it. Uh, there's instruments all across the stage. It's like a toy shop up there. And he's just jumping around. And then he'll actually do uh, tracks in, in real time. He'll, he'll lay down a drum part, then a bass, and you know, record them, loop them, and then add and add and add until you've got this almost orchestral uh, sound going up on stage. So I started off by asking John about that that ongoing residency at Largo. These shows are legendary. It used to be musicians would show up to play with John late in the evening, and, you know, Robin Hitchcock's in town. He'd show up and play with John. You know, uh, Amy Mann would drop in, Michael Penn. But pretty soon people just started to come to see John because it was like a Grateful Dead show except better. I don't think there's ever been there's ever been a show that you've done twice. I mean, it's been a different show every yeah. I, I uh, can't night. I, I can't make any qualitative judgment of you know my show versus the Grateful Dead, but I assume there are less people on acid in the audience. That's the one thing I. I, but it, that too is an assumption. So yes, <laughs> kind of a new generation version of that, the long-standing residency that Les Paul would have every week in New York. Very much. You so. know, and people in New York would go to see Les, and you never know who would be on stage. I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes it would be Jimmy Page playing. With mm-hmm. him, yeah, you know? really an amazing thing. Now you ended the shows uh, a few months ago because of a little tendonitis issue. Mm-hmm. I've heard tell of that last show. You basically did the entire show left-handed. Yeah, is that true? Yeah, <laughs> including playing including, the drums. 
And the guitar, right? Yeah, well, which is not, that's sort of not the hard one. And Nora's piano, because, you know, you're used to using this limb anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, but getting a bit busier with the left hand to fill in some of the space started to get hectic. Uh, the guitar was the sort of fun one to try and get through, which I just stepped on lots of pedals so it would sustain, and it was just like some very bad histrionic, you know, Everything 70s goes, guitar. Everything goes better with fuzz. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so but uh, I think that the way that you do the show is fascinating. You will start by playing a groove on the drums. And you sample that. Uh, when you hit your stride, you, I guess you click off the sample, and that loops. And you move over to the piano, and you get a little piano thing going, you sample a stretch of it, and that loops. And then you'll move over to guitar and vocals, add that on top of it. There are other times, I guess, where you add even other things in. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, just great. anything to amuse myself. So a one-man band, uh, courtesy of electronics, that you set up and then augment. I guess the fun of it for people is just seeing the process. I think there are a lot of things as a musician that, you know, we take for granted that are interesting to other people. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the first time anybody ever talks into a mic and there's echo on it, it's an astounding moment. I've never seen a human who experienced that for the first time who didn't go like, oh my God, that's, that's incredible, incredible, incredible. It's there again, again, again. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. But you forget, you know, it's just another, it's like a, you know, a hammer or a screwdriver to a musician. It's just in our part of the toolkit. Like, I don't know, I just started getting really bored going to see bands, two guitar, bass, drums, play their 45-minute set in the same order they played it, usually with the same in-between song banner. And the interesting moment I would always see at gigs, and... You know, when I talk to most people, they usually agree. The night that the PA goes down and there's five minutes of awkwardness and then suddenly they just go sit at the front of the stage with some acoustic guitars mm -hmm. and play for what people can hear them. That's the thing you remember. It's, it's the things that were forced to happen by chance that lodge in your memory. So my whole gig has been based around that and not being afraid to show the process and building the thing with the loopers is that it's sort of like well it's an opportunity for people to get to see essentially how records are made mm -hmm. and it also in a way does sort of keep me in a line of tradition with somebody like les paul who used to do a live demonstration of how he overdubbed yeah we play the first part on the guitar All this right. is the rhythm part Goes, uh... Play the second part to this. I mean, I used to go see Les Paul all the time in New York 20 years ago. And, you know, he did every Monday night. And there was something really beautiful about that. So all those things sort of coalesced into 
what Fridays became. To the silver screen, but the film is a saddening bore. Cause she wrote it ten times and more. She can spin in the eyes of fools. As I ask you to focus on sailors fighting in the dance hall. And the mastery of all the instruments, too. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't mastery realize... Mastery is a bit of an overstatement. <laughs> well, you know, I got to say, when Macy Gray, you know, how many uh, how many Grammys did she win for that first album? A lot of people don't realize, like, I think he played everything on that record, basically. Oh, no, that's completely untrue. <laughs> no, it is. I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm one of a number of session musicians. I mean, yeah, I played on most of that record and mm-hmm. maybe a number of instruments per song, but not... Well, not all of them I've by heard the story. Enemies. I've heard the real story, and they say everybody's saying no, Brian that, made that record, basically. No, that's complete bullshit. Andy Slater, <laughs> uh, you, you can bleep that. No, I was just I was a session musician on it. I didn't produce. Andy Slater did a great job on that mm-hmm. record. I hear that a lot. Like, if I'm around on some records, somebody's like, well, you actually produced that, and you wrote all those songs, and uh, you uh, you pressed the record yourself in some strange you know, factory you have that you don't let anybody into. Um, but I think there are just assumptions that get made way too quickly. Like, God, you know, it's one that really absolutely blew my mind was when I produced the uh, second Fiona Apple record, a big fan of hers came up and talked to me and was so happy and going oh man this is the record you know we were sort of hoping as fans she would make this is great I'm like oh wow I'm glad to hear that it's beautiful and he goes so he started bringing up specific things in songs and he goes like oh and fast as you can when it goes to goes to halftime that was that was you right that's your idea I'm like (laughs) um no that's how she wrote it and it was just translating fast as you can baby scratch me That's what she wrote. I didn't. I didn't change a note of what she wrote. And you know, I think finally I got a little bit cranky with somebody and just sort of having to say, you know, it's not like I go in and it's like let me fix this. The people I choose to work with are people I'm interested in learning from and mm-hmm. and being around. And I mean, for me, I get this beautiful view of watching my favorite artists work because I'm there. Uh, but the assumption, I think, because of the you know the the classic archetype the myth of the uh the mad scientist which people just sort of stencil on top of me because i play a bunch of instruments they say well it's a prince thing he does everything and, <laughs> and he's like phil specter and puts the gun at their head and tells them how to phrase things and uh which really turned out to have some very bad ramifications later. Yeah, yeah. um and it's just not the case i mean i feel like i've gotten to be around incredibly talented people and my version of doing my job well the best example I've ever found is there's an old Twilight Zone episode of an old man walking around with like one of those cigarette trays and he's walking through a diner and he, he's trying to sell knickknacks and people aren't buying. Are you kidding, old timer? What would I need? He'd walk over to one person and go, I'll tell you what you need. This is what you need. 
It's yours. No charge tonight. And it was spot remover. And the guy was like, you know, get away from me, old man. I don't need that. And the guy would walk out of the room and the guy would suddenly spill coffee on his tie and, mm. you know, look up and the music would go. Yeah. <laughs> um, to me, that's the essence of what I try to do. You try and fill only the spaces which aren't getting taken care of. And it's why it's fun to be able to do a lot of things. Like, oh, you know, today all it needs is like a little bit of crazy piano for eight bars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, some days, maybe you're the person who knows what it should be on all the instruments, and it's faster to just play it than try to describe to other people. Sure. Some days, you don't play anything, and you sit back and you get a free concert. The misunderstanding is because of this, you know, stupid archetype. The Who's your hero as producer, if you... uh... Mm, I think Chris Thomas, who is not very well known, but he was an assistant at Abbey Road. And when George Martin would go away on vacation, he was actually producing Beatle records, Mm. although he didn't get credit for it at the time. Then in the early 70s, when he went independent, he produced, well, let's see, he produced a, a salty dog for... Procol Harum. Mm-hmm. He produced a number of the early Roxy Music records, mm-hmm. the second and the fifth yeah. one, notably, and the early Brian Ferry solo records, uh, 70s Badfinger records, uh, John Cale's Paris 1919. Great record. Uh, beautiful record. Then he goes on to produce all the early Pretenders records, mm-hmm. produces Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols. In the 80s, goes on to produce the couple of the huge in excess records. In the 90s, did Pulp's Different Class. Mm-hmm. Um, most recently, was working with you too. And what I adore about him is when you look at the trajectory of his career, he doesn't have a sound. Mm-hmm. The only thing is, qualitatively, It's always really good. There's always a very clear picture of what's going on. And it sounds like that artist at their best. If you put on the second Roxy Music record, it's what you want. That's as good as it gets. Yeah, yeah. you hear additions of you or something like that, you know, or do the strand. It's just like, yes. Chris Thomas, okay, here, mixed uh, Here Come the Warm Jets mm-hmm. with Eno, mixed Dark Side of the Moon. Right. Now, think about this career-wise. He made Nevermind the Bollocks. Yeah. Okay, if, if you had only done that, mm-hmm. basically your name should be hallowed. But you think about them and how much they hated Pink Floyd and the Beatles. Right, Johnny Rotten wearing an I Hate Pink Floyd t-shirt. When right. He did. Right. <laughs> It's like our music is a reaction against that. We do not want to be that. We do not want to be associated with it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, right on. Hey, did I mention I made the White Album? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> That's great. What do you say you play us some, some music? Hmm. John Bryan with his song Knock Yourself Out from the I Heart Huckabees soundtrack, live on Sound Opinions back in 2006. After a short break, John Bryan explains the difference between songs and performances. And later, we'll review the new album from R&B singer Emily Sande. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. I'm just a little person One person in a sea of many little people who are not aware of me I do my little job and live my little life eat my little meals miss my little kid and wife And somewhere, maybe someday, maybe somewhere far away, I'll find a second little person who will look at me and say,
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRigatis. And today we're revisiting our 2006 interview with producer, film composer, and multi-instrumentalist John Bryan. Now, John's also a great songwriter, and he tends to gravitate towards songwriters when he's working with artists. And we're talking about people at the highest level of the game, Fiona Apple, Amy Mann, Elliot Smith, Rufus Wainwright, the guys in Spoon, Kanye West. You know, so I asked him why he champions the art of song. Oh, I think songs are astonishing things, and I also don't think most people really even know what they are. Mm -hmm. Why do you say that? I distinguish between what, for lack of better terms, I call songs and performance pieces. And what most people like are specific performances. We've grown up in an era of recording. And, you know, the very thing, one of the very things I love, recording has killed people's ability to hear songs purely as chord change, melody, and lyric. It's a very strange and beautiful art form, because when it's right, boy, do you know it. But what we have sort of lost is, uh, I don't know, the best example I could probably give would be Led Zeppelin. Those things (laughs) are the ultimate performance pieces in that, and the way I can illustrate it is, Cott promised me you were going to bring up Led Zeppelin. Yeah, well, I thought, I did, th- th- no way. Here's the thing. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan. I, I think they're just absolutely astonishing, and the sort of dynamics they had are sorely lacking in music today. Uh, the record making is great. Um, a true band in the sense that you really could tell who the individuals were. Mm-hmm. Uh, remarkable thing. And I don't consider most of those things songs and the way I can sort of prove my point is have you ever listened to anybody else play a Led Zeppelin song and gone oh that was a great satisfying experience except for Dred Zeppelin who I loved (laughs) Um, what people like is that specific guitar sound that specific performance Mm -hmm. in concert with that specific drum sound with that specific drummer playing that specific part Um, and it's beautiful it's a beautiful thing However, if I were to sit and go here over on the piano and go, this is the melody to a Led Zeppelin song. (laughs) And I could play, you know, 30 others. That's the thing. Um, You know, I know it could sound like a snobbishness. It's not. I'm telling you, I love these records. They're great. Uh, However, it is... There's a difference between that and a song, say a Gershwin song, you could actually play in the style of Led Zeppelin and have a completely satisfying experience. I do it mm-hmm. all the time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I want to hear that. But when you start playing Zeppelin songs, say in the style of like 1920s music, it's suddenly it's laid bare that it's like, yeah. oh no, it was about those people and those people were in a room and it was great. I love it, but I consider it a performance piece, and I consider 
a lot of rock that people listen to be performance pieces. They're not necessarily songs. So, you know, I heard you had Tom York here recently, and there's a guy who's a songwriter. Comes into the band and goes, here's the thing I've got, and then they, you know, rock with holy hardness and, and all the greatness they've got with mm-hmm. them getting in a room. I mean, you know, that's part of what makes a band like Radiohead stand out. You know, when that second record came out, we all collectively went, oh my God, somebody who actually has songs and this guy's an amazing singer. This is what you This is what you get when you mess with us. It isn't extinct yet. Yeah. And or Cobain, right? Right, exactly. And I mean, okay, here, let's, uh, a little musicology course. Okay, if you just go, yeah, it was cool, it was, you know, punk rock, it was popular, he had it factor for days, but, uh, if, you take the average punk rock song, it is that same Led Zeppelin melody, even though they hated Zeppelin so much. It's very funny. <laughs> you know, but if it's like... Could be, you know, one of a thousand punk songs. Sure. Uh, there's a big difference between that and... I mean... I can sit here on grand piano, play an unaffected version, and we can all go, oh, my God, yeah, that's the best thing ever. Yeah. yeah. Again, my, my spine tingles anytime I play that melody over those chord changes. Mm-hmm. That, to me, lithium is no different. It's in the same realm as being able to go, you know, uh, you know, where, you know, probably like most people, I remember exactly where I was First time I heard lithium. I remember mm-hmm. back of the friend's car and it came on and I just freaked out. I mean, I was nearly in tears. I'm like, oh my God, that guy's better than everybody says. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's true. Yeah. But, you know, it was so palpable. Like, that's one of the best chord changes I've ever heard. It's absolutely as good as, you know, Gershwin or Thelonious Monk or any great thing that's existed. I'm so happy. Cause today from my friends You're in my head I'm so ugly That's okay Cause so are you Book on his Sunday morning Is every day for all I care And I'm not scared Light my candles In our days Cause I found God Well, I think this is a point where we absolutely have to insert Kanye West because, you know, we still have... I mean, it's amazing to me, even people who love music will mm-hmm. still make this argument to Greg and myself, well, he's rap. You know, he's okay for rap. He's not a musician. Yeah. So, so put, put for me, put, for me put, put Kanye in that lineage of Gershwin to Cobain to... Yeah. Well, you know, the thing is, what Kanye is doing is remarkable. He has pure musical instincts. And I remember I was playing bass on something one day. And he was like, stop, stop. I'm like, what? He's like, you're playing funky. I hate when people play funky. <laughs> and I was, I was sort of taking him back. And he was really just like so sick of working with musicians, trying to work on rap stuff. Okay, I'm going to do the really funny thing. He's like, why won't people just play melody? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, 
I love playing melody, especially on bass. I said, you, you like that? He's like, I love that. Mm. You know, and this was in the first few days we were working together. I'm like, we're going to get along fine. Yeah. We yeah. have no problem. I've watched him walk into a control room where I've had something up. I've made a rough mix. think it sounds decent and, you know, it's in a good place for us to start work when he comes in. He'll come in and go, no, 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 it's all wrong. Throws all the faders down, puts them up, and in five or six minutes makes these really extreme relationships between things, and suddenly it has life force. Mm. The guy has pure instincts. He knows it when he hears it. He has the commitment to his ideas. You know, everybody, just because he's like, you know, uh, famous, you know, sort of loudmouth, they're like, well, that guy's a crazy egomaniac. And I'm like, well, no, I couldn't deal with anybody who was. He's great, listens to everybody's ideas, sorts through them, picks the things that are the most resonant to him, and stands by them. He absolutely gets it. The guy is an artist. I'm ahead of my time, sometimes years out, so the powers that be won't let me get my ideas out, and that make me want to get my advance out, and move to Oklahoma and just live in my aunt's house, yeah, I romance the thought of leaving it all behind, Kanye step away from the lime, like, like, when I was on the grind in the one, nine, nine. We're talking to John Bryan, and he's sitting at a piano, and it is a, a sin that we're talking to John Bryan, and he's not playing that piano. <laughs> no, talking's not nice. <laughs> You're just yeah. trying to avoid yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh Okay, damn. Well, then I have to think of something to do. That's pesky. Okay, I'll do something new.
something when with you now I'm something new on account of the little downer in the afternoon. You know, hearing you perform that song, John, though, uh, makes me wonder, man, not only are you this uh, Hollywood uh, 
movie composer, soundtrack maven. Uh, you've, you've done some great production wow, work. Wow, a maven. Yes, you are. You have your own cottage <laughs> I industry. feel like Citizen Kane. And actually, I, I have to say, you know, just a quick side note, I, I listened to the Punch Drunk Glove uh, soundtrack just for fun, independently of the movie, because I think the compositions themselves actually stand on their own incredibly well. And then when you see with the movie, you, you kind of get what you're going at. You talk about a lost art, songwriting, the, the whole Hollywood, or just a movie soundtrack in itself has become sort of a, a, a lost art. How do you do that? How do you do that well? As opposed to like, Don't okay, know. let's call up uh, the latest hot band to write a, a, a kickoff song for the new Godzilla blockbuster, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, it's more the fault of the filmmakers and the movie companies than the film composers. There are a ton of talented people on the West Coast who can do anything that's asked of them. And for the most part, what's being asked of them is to be typical. And most of their paychecks depend on homogeny. And, you know, that's not their fault specifically. I've just been lucky in that I've worked with people who are mavericks and mavens and stand up for themselves. I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson is a guy who basically won't allow any movie people onto the set or any recording session. And I didn't even realize this was special because I started with Paul. And it's only in the intervening years where I realized there are always producers around. There's always somebody visiting from the movie company. They always have to have an opinion. <laughs> but the film guys have it tough. It's a very, very thankless job. And I think the only reason I've gotten to do some things that have maybe stood out a little bit is because I've aligned myself with people who are trying to do that in every choice they make. Mm -hmm. You know, Charlie Kaufman and Michelle Gondry and Paul Thomas Anderson and David O. Russell, I mean, these are not people who are going around trying to make movies like everybody else. It's, yeah. in fact, they wake up in the morning going, how am I gonna do something different? I've been lucky. All I've generally heard in my career is somebody doesn't go, hey, how can you make that sound more like our things, if anything, they're going to be as quick as me to point out, like, yeah, that just sounds like other movies. <laughs> Which is beautiful. That's the kind of comment I want. I want somebody to call me if I'm, you know, being lazy. I want to get mm. called on it. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's the obvious thing to do for the scene, and it's great, and you did it right, you know, in quotation marks. Mm -hmm. um, but come on. I mean, we've got the opportunity to do something here. That's and amazing. when somebody says that to you, it's like, you're, you're an idiot not to rise to the occasion. You've got many avenues of expression, John, and uh, the question is, you've written a number of songs since the last record came out. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen you perform a number of them over the years. Great great stuff. And I guess oh, the question to you. me is, is, is there a part of you that needs to get that stuff out, or are you satisfied with the other stuff that you're doing artistically? See, I don't, I don't feel... Okay, because I've never felt part of... Uh, what I call the... There's like the rock myth and the sort of punk myth stuff. I'm, I'm not interested in it. If I didn't have everything else, I would probably have a little more burning drive. 
but I don't. I don't have personal ambition in that way of I must get my records out. People must pay attention to them. People must say they're good. I must be doing that, and I better do it soon because, you know, it's too late already, isn't it? By the standard clock, I've already completely done it. I've done a very poor job with my career. <laughs> um, and it's confusing for some people to understand. But, uh, you know, there's a problem I've run into. People who know me as a producer first will actually sit down, like very kindly trying to talk to me so I can stop being so self-destructive. Like, you've got to, you know, why don't you just concentrate on that? I mean, the movie stuff, and it's cute <laughs> you want to be a songwriter, but just do that. Like, you know, you yeah. could be... You know, you could really make something of yourself, <laughs> honestly. And I'm talking people I really respect. Yeah. If people knew me as a songwriter first, okay, why are you so psychologically, willfully self-destructive as to not put out records all the time? You're one of my favorite songwriters. Why don't you do that mm. more? Why are you wasting your time working for other people? That's, it's really worrisome, and I think you really need to look into it, and you should stop doing these other things. <laughs> the people who do movies don't even notice that, that I'm a song like not even yeah. the, it's not on their radar the fact that I produce records doesn't matter people who are doing movies are completely tunnel vision not only about movies in general but only their movie <laughs> right nothing right, right. else exists although she's none the wiser although we've barely met I could recognize her from the treatment that I get so it's my duty to if she breaks the rules I've said I'll quit though I'll admit that hasn't happened yet I believe she's lying I trust her to undermine my faith in her in time I have every confidence that she'll dismantle mine Given time And for me it's all fun and it's all wonderful and if I'm lucky enough to not be hit by a bus by the time my life's done I'll probably have made as many records as a solo artist as most people make in their career because other people only make them as long as record companies are paying for them promoting them as long as audiences are showing up right. only during the period for some people where there's a certain sort of vanity mm -hmm. in it like well you know I look too old to be in a rock band now so I can't really do that as much now you know, the rock fans, the, I've, that doesn't matter. In a week, I can work on a movie, yeah. play on somebody else's record, write a song with somebody, play a gig of my own, spend a day putzing around in a studio, maybe recording some of my own songs, maybe just making sound, and take two days off and see friends. But the fact is, I intend to do stuff until they put me in the ground. Now here's one last performance from John Bryan, the theme music from the film Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, live on Sound Opinions back in 2006.
John Bryan on Sound Opinion. It's been an absolute pleasure having you here. Thanks, John. Cool to be here. Now we want to hear from you. What do you think of the difference between songcraft and performance? Leave a message on our hotline, 888-859-1800. When we get back, we're going to share our thoughts on the new album from Scottish singer Emily Sonday. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. You've got to hope that there's someone for you As strange as you are Who can cope with the things that you do Without trying too hard Sound Opinions, that is a little bit of the track Hurts from the new album, the second by Emily Sande, Long Live the Angels. Greg, we were a big fan of Emily Sande from the very beginning. Her 2012 debut, our version of events, we had her as a guest on Sound Opinions, talking with us and performing in April 2013. Uh, Fascinating story. She was born in Aberdeen, Scotland, a young Scottish musician, played the clarinet and piano growing up. Her dad was a Zambian choir master. A lot of influences going into her unique mix of sounds. Now, the Brits, who are not always kind uh, as critics, uh, have have dubbed this genre Kleenex Soul. (laughs) And for certain, uh, you know, obviously Adele, superstar, uh, breaking all records with her her, uh, record sales. Um, You know, I I think that's unfair to Adele. It's certainly unfair to Emily Sandy. Uh, I I don't know if it's unfair to Sam Smith. Uh, There are Mm. lesser talents here that are doing a sort of new neo-soul, ballad-heavy sound. Emily Soundy has this big success, and it freaks her out uh, how well-received her debut album was. She kind of withdraws from the spotlight for several years. She has a marriage. It doesn't end well. She stays uh, sort of anchored at home. People wondered if we'd even get a second record, and now... Here it is. So what is Emily Sande giving us on this second album? Many people have been eagerly awaiting it. Let's play a track. We'll come back and give our opinions. This is Give Me Something by Emily Sande on Sound Opinions. I guess I got caught up in the rough and tumble. Didn't mean to cause no trouble at all, at all. I'm just so sick of the dream that's ending. 
doesn't feel like heaven at all, at all. So give me something. Give me something. Give me something. I can't believe it. Give me. That is Give Me Something from Long Live the Angels, the new album from Emily Sande. Jim, this album is a, is a surprise to me in some ways uh, because our version of events, uh, so, you know, huge seller, and I figured she's just going to pick up where that one left off, pick yeah. up on the formula, electro, pop, soul, a little short on grit and specifics, nice voice, you know, kind of plain. Um, and what really drew me to this artist was seeing her perform live a couple of times. I mean, the mm-hmm. powerhouse voice and really got something to say. And I said, man, I'd love to hear some of that on a record. I think we're getting a little bit of that on this record for once. Um, it's a major improvement over the first record, which I liked, but this is better. The whole idea of heartbreak, you know, is kind of a cliche, a lot of cliched songs out of that. What it's given Emily Sande is a little more courage and a little more clarity. She's taken away some of the overproduction uh, that uh, weighed down our version of events. And you can really hear it in that song we just played, where it's very stripped down, the quality of her voice is there. And, uh, you know, when you talk about soul, it's, you know, you can hear it or you can't, you know? Right, and, right. and it's there in that voice. You know, the Kleenex soul thing, that applies to a lot of these artists who are Ooh, dabbling yeah. in soul there. You know, Mary J. Blige made a record with some of these producers a couple of years ago and took them to school. Yeah. This is how you do the real thing, guys. Um, Emily Sunday's getting to that place. She'll not, you know, she's not Mary J. Blige by any stretch but she's starting to feel like okay i need to sing about my life in a more transparent way and you're really hearing it on this track so that the heartbreak when it leads to moments of celebration like tenderly where she goes back to uh the african village where her family is rooted in i need you to love me tenderly i need you to touch me Or a song like Garden, uh, which is a very sensual song um, that uh, guest verse from Jay Electronica. Love is like a garden. Love is like a death sentence. Love is like a pardon. I'm free again and ready. Once outside these prison walls to believe again is scary. Your garden is my sanctuary. They feel like earned moments, these moments Mm -hmm. of celebration. So she's taken it a step up here um, on this record. This is an improvement over the last record. I'd say it's a buy it. I think it's a buy it too, Greg. And 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 to underscore, you loved her to begin with. You you turned me on to her. Yeah. She was great when she was on the show uh, back in uh, 2013. I think it's a great production. I think this record sounds really wonderful. I would put it in between what Beyonce has given us and Solange. It's like 50% yeah. uh, each of those two uh, Knowles sisters. Uh, not that it's derivative, but just in terms of, of the spirit and the production, part underground and part mainstream balladry. I really like it. We both do. It's a double buy it. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're doing a feature called Hero Worship. We explore the songs that honor other artists. Sound Opinions was produced by Brendan Banasek, Evan Chung, and Alex Claiborne.
On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Bus, bus, line is busy every time that I phone. Bus is the longest talker I ever known. Bus, bus, I've been trying hard to reach him all day. Bus, when I get him, I forget what to say. New messages. This is Bryce from Los Angeles calling. What the heck is going on over there? You know, I tell all my music head friends to uh, listen to your show, but every once in a while you come up with a real head flapper. And here was one, listening with great hope to your world tour stop in Canada, waiting, waiting for you to mention the, the actual best, most popular Canadian band. Nothing, nothing, then I saw it coming. There's no way we can talk about the music of Canada without mentioning one of our favorite bands ever, says Jim. I leaned in closer to the stereo. Here it comes. Rush? Rush? Are you kidding me? That band is the musical equivalent of drunkenly eating a dog biscuit in high school. But listen, it's okay, guys. There's still time to make it up to me, music lovers, and the entire nation of Canada will gladly accept your mea culpa when you do a retrospective on the actual most beloved Canadian band, The Tragically Hip. I'm looking forward to it, so thanks in advance. Hey, Jim and Greg, this is Brad Brooks Rubin from Washington, D.C. Just got finished listening to the Turkey Pardon episode, uh, and I have to say, a lot of those picks felt more like fish in a barrel, you were pardoning uh, more than turkeys, America, Chicago, Coolio, these didn't seem like bands that um, quite lived up to the attention you were giving them, most of them are forgettable bands, so I'm going to give you my pick, which is Blink-182, a band that has achieved a lot of commercial success over a number of years, my turkey pardon for them would be What's My Age Again, from Enema of the State, an absurdly titled album, but What's My Age Again, I think, captures all of what they've been trying to say over the many years in one song. And that's about the time she walked away from me. Nobody likes you when you're 23. And you still act like you're in freshman year. What the hell is wrong with me? My friends say I should have my age. That's about the time that she walked away from me. After that, it's been pretty much all downhill. Um, thanks very much. Hi, my name is Sean, and I'm from Omaha. If you really want to know the definition of a turkey, at least for me, a great candidate for a turkey pardon, look no further than the band Warrant. Yes, Warrant. Almost their entire catalog is like the perfect definition of a turkey. However, they did manage to come out with one decent song, and that was Uncle Tom's Cabin. Granted, it's not Paint It Black or Master of Puppets or even Mr. Brownstone, but for the type of music that Warren did, it was a good, good song in that it, if it came on classic radio, I'd still listen to it today, 25 years later. But anyway, love the show. Keep up the good work. Thanks. But it's not a crime 
that you hear tonight. It's not some pilgrim who claims to have seen the light. No, it's a cold and it's a very broken hallelujah. Hey, Jim and Greg, it's Bruce from Upper J, New York. Please don't ever play hallelujah again. That is the most overplayed song. It's not even the best song by Leonard Cohen. And it's such a piece of schmaltz. If it be your will, now there's a song. There's a song with poetry. From this broken hill, all your praises they shall ring. No more messages. If it be your will. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. If there is-